you're listening to History Out Loud, Chat from the Stacks, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries. Presented by Jill Carpenter. So here we are again for another episode of History Out Loud, and I'm really pleased to welcome back John Billingsley. Hello. Hello. <laughs> nice to be back as well. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who's listened to the podcast and who's maybe trolled back through some of our past episodes will know that John has been a regular, not for quite some time. I think it, it's nearly a year since we did Robin Hood with uh, Paul Weatherhead. Paul Weatherhead. Yeah. yeah. And if you haven't listened to the podcast and you don't know who John is, I'll just tell you a few things about him. So um, he's a writer, folklore aficionado, would you say? Yeah, folklorist, yeah. Yeah. Um, he's editor of Northern Earth magazine. And he's also um, director of the Folklore Centre in Tomberdon. Well, we should give it his full title, really. Centre for Folklore, Myth and Magic. Ah, OK. Run by Holly Elston. That's right. Yeah. She's she's the boss. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to know more about it, you can just put um, uh, folklore myth magic in the search box of your search engine. Yeah. And that will take you to their website. Yeah. Our website. It's mostly run by volunteers. Well, it's mostly staffed by volunteers, isn't it? Mm. Holly's the founder and the boss and the arranger and generally does just about everything you know <laughs> including the cafe on some days but you know there, there are some really really great people sort of helping along with all, all sorts of bits and pieces um in the cafe setting up the events and so on like that uh, and we should say we've got folklore events every saturday almost every saturday throughout the year yeah so uh four o'clock on saturday afternoons it's worth coming along and supporting. It's actually the, the North's only a dedicated folklore centre. Is it? Yeah. Mm. Um, and we're also working towards making an arts centre at the same time. So watch our spaces for more information about things that are happening. Yeah, you're on social media, aren't you, as well? Yeah, yeah. So Holly's on yeah. Twitter and Facebook and uh, yeah. So you you have been very busy lately, I know, but um, one of your projects, you've been writing a new book. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's got a tentative title, A Magical History of Calderdale. Yeah, I mean, it's really a, a description of the contents, but the... Um, and there will be a snappier title one day. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, a key point of that is a magical history, because I'm not trying to give the history of magic as it's impacted on Calderdale. That's pretty much imp impossible from a documentary point of view, if nothing else. Um, it's going to include things like the topic we're going to talk about today. It's going to include the uh, witchcraft trials which have affected Calderdale. It's going to include cunning folk and areas, various news items which have turned up in the 19th and 20th centuries. 
you know, just tracing a little route through evidence that we have that people have been believing in and active in magical pursuits and sometimes misunderstanding magical pursuits right the way from the Bronze Age to um, I give up round about the 1970s because then it would just get too much to to figure out. Yeah. Mm. So that's a nice introduction into today's topic, um, which you've also written a book about specifically. Mm. Um, and we're going to be talking about The Mixenden Treasure, which is the title of the book that you wrote in 2009. Mm. Um, it's a completely fascinating story. You sent me the chapter that you, you're putting in your new book on this. And um, at times it's almost a little bit comical, almost a bit dad's army. Do you know what mm. I mean? In it, the way it's, it all turns out. Yeah, it's a, you might call it a magical farce, can't you? A magical you? farce, you know? yeah. So one lot of conspiracies runs through one dough and another lot run out through the other one, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if we can start, first of all, just give a little bit of background on the history of Mixenden mm. and how it fits in with the broader local history of Halifax and the area. Basically, we're talking about 500 years ago um, we're talking about events which happened in 1510, which give you an idea is around about the time they were building the first stone bridge in Hebden Bridge. Um, and 500 years ago, what we know as Mixenden then was known as Mixendale. And that describes probably the, the scenery. It would have been isolated farms scattered about on the hillside with a main highway running down what is, I don't know the, the A number of the road, but the main road down through Denham and into Illingworth. That was an old highway. Another turnpike was crossing Soil Hill. And yeah, it, it wouldn't have borne much resemblance to the Mixendon we see today, but uh, it would have been a typical West Yorkshire Pennine rural area. Yeah, I amused myself in writing the, the book about thinking how it might have been to be walking on one of those turnpikes or the highway and realising that back in those days, that was before dry stone walls. You know, that was before um, a lot of the traffic. So you get a fairly silent landscape where a person's voice would, would actually carry to the other side of the valley. And the only sound you'd hear would be the clinking of pack horse bells and the the sounds of animals. Sheep. <laughs> sheep, well, there weren't that many sheep, but mostly cattle. Oh, okay. You could have stood on the side of Soil Hill and uh, it would have looked different. It would have sounded different. You'd be in a, another world. And lots of Cordell, Upper Cordell would have been like that, but... So now we're in the mists of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, the legend of Mixenden treasure, what we're about to talk about, it's actually a true story. Before anyone sort of thinks, oh, it's, it's just, you know, a folktale, it, it actually happened. And um, it's a documented case. How have you been able to, to research it yourself? Um, there are references 
to the Mixenden Treasurer in the Halifax Antiquarian Society papers, for instance, and in other publications. And those articles are interesting, but they were written by antiquarians who were, I think we can safely call them materialist antiquarians. They, they read this story, which in 18 something, can't remember what it was, James Rain put into the Yorkshire Archaeological Journal a transcript of the court proceedings at York in 1510, and they were largely in Latin. So these Halifax antiquarians and other antiquarians had, had read these, and they'd obviously thought, oh, magic, huh, what a lot of nonsense this is. <laughs> practicing magic they, they obviously didn't take it seriously they, they hadn't thought of the episode in terms of how ordinary people thought or the the context of magic at that time in England and things have come on quite a way in the last 30-40 years in history terms we now understand a lot more about the the general public idea of magic so these antiquarian stories that treated the whole mixenden treasure as a bit of nonsense a bit of you know weren't these old rustics funny that kind of story um i don't like that kind of thing <laughs> you know, i thought there's something going on here we need to know more about it so i went back to the transcripts and i got a friend of mine to uh, translate the latin and it's a handy friend <laughs> well yeah yeah <laughs> oh Cloris, have those kind of friends <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I was able to kind of lay it all out and then it's a really confusing story the court proceedings weren't like our our kind of courts where they're trying to get all the detail all they wanted to know was whether these men that they brought in for investigation were guilty of heresy or sorcery and the punishment they needed so they didn't check out on all the finer points of detail yeah so over my research i had to try to make sense and also i brought to it um you know i'm not a magician but i do have an awareness of magic um and its historical understanding so I think I may have been the first antiquarian with that perspective to come to the Mixenden treasure. And then it started to make sense and also open up interesting other avenues, which, again, the antiquarians wouldn't have done. Things like, is the fairy realm, should it be taken seriously? Um, what happens when you dig for treasure? Does you know think about the Egyptian pyramids? Is there a jinx which is unleashed? And also this perennial of topics in English history, social class never gets out of the way. And this group of men were a mixture of priests and commoners and gentlemen. Really, really strange mix. So it kind of raised a lot of issues as well that had contemporary re relevance as well as historical. Sorry, I'll shut up. No, that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> um, so if we move on to the story itself, you've mentioned already, but if we can just give it a timestamp. Um... Yeah, at the beginning of the 1500s, there was a rumour 
going around uh, Yorkshire, I have to say, not, not just Halifax, that in Mixendale, at a place called Mixendale Hurda, um, Hurda is a Anglo-Saxon, it's a dialect word, sorry, for a mound. Um, in Mixendale Hurda, there was a treasure hoard full of gold, enough gold to ransom a king, they were saying, plus a sword of maintenance and a, and a great book, which indicates that it was visible and only half buried. So people knew about it. The question is, so why hadn't they gone off with it, yeah. having gone to see it? It was because it was guarded by a demon. And one chap, Leventhorpe, who was probably the man behind the Leventhorpe Chapel in Bradford Cathedral, um, he'd confronted the demon and had a go at it with his sword. But the demon just snapped it as if it had been a, a thin stick or a rush. Is this a previous attempt? Yeah, there were at least three people claimed to have seen it. Right. And said, yep, it was guarded by a demon. You can't just go up and say, oh, look, a buried treasure. I love that. <laughs> so it was general knowledge that it needed magic to get past the demon, to get this protected treasure out of the ground. So that's the story that it was there in Mixendale Herd um, and you needed magic. So uh, it was then a question of uh, who could muster the magic, really? Yeah, we, we should probably say at this point um, that the search for treasure back then, it, it wasn't actually as, as whimsical as we might see it today. Um, could, you, could you say yeah. a little bit about that? Um, one thing that we all know about the Middle Ages is that it wasn't very peaceful. There are wars going off all the time. There are, you know, there was disruption. There were no banks then either. And if you had wealth and uh, trouble was coming your way, then the best thing you could do was bury it and hope to come back and retrieve it later. So uh, that's what a lot of people did. And of course, a lot of people didn't survive that trouble. When, when we find, say, a Roman coin hoard, as we have done various places around here, they would have been buried probably by British bandits who never survived to get back to them. And then even in the Middle Ages, you've got these troubles. You're getting rich men burying their valuables and then not surviving. So they're really, and this is all over Britain, there really is a case of gold in them that hills <laughs> for us. And yeah. people knew it in the Middle Ages. And we have treasure digging records going back, I think, um, certainly the 15th century. I think it might be the 14th century as well. We have, we have records of people digging into ground and actually coming up with gold and valuables. In my book, I talk about some of those. So. And then in um, in Henry VIII's reign, he passed a statute which made a felony of people digging for treasure. Because they, they were called cross diggers, weren't they? Cross diggers, yeah. They were hiding the treasure. Obviously, they'd have to 
have some kind of place yeah. that they could recognize it's it's near that cross or it's near that cairn or yeah exactly so there's only a limited number you know of potential locations henry's statute read because by their actions um, an inestimable number of crosses have been pulled down which is really ironic when you think of Henry VIII's later Reformation, when he went yeah. around pulling crosses. Um, and one of those crosses was on the edge of Soil Hill, which is where one of the foci of the Mixington treasure legend came. Um, so there was treasure out there and there were men after it. And a lot of those men after it were also service magicians of some kind they had magical ability and they were very familiar with the idea that anything buried in the earth somehow acquires magical protection from the spiritual realm or from the earth itself you know it it, it wasn't a mundane activity they believed the spirits could could move a treasure deeper into the ground or or bring it to the surface theoretically yeah there's various things various spirits could do so in a sense the fact that the treasure was partially exposed to their minds that would mean that something had made it that way therefore something was protecting it yeah when i, when I kind of read these things i'm I'm thinking, well, there seems to be a certain amount of volition in this treasure. You know, not only is it factor, but obviously it's become visible as a temptation. Yeah. Uh, several people make this attempt on it, all unsuccessful. Does that mean that it can retreat into the earth if necessary? Or that a demon spirit can hide it? These are, these are unanswerable questions. But uh, but we do note they come up in legends time and again. Yeah. So if we if we introduce the the actual characters, the people involved, the conspirators, um, can you say a little bit? There was nine of them, wasn't there? Yeah, I'm going to have to read my notes there. <laughs> yeah. One thing I have to say about this, you know, I've alluded to it already. Working out from the court transcripts what was happening and and when. That's pretty confusing. And it also gets pretty confusing because nine nine men were involved. I've got a list here. I've got a list as well. <laughs> You've got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You've got a chap called William Otwell, who's um lives in Bingley, and he probably was an innkeeper. He got involved in it. Um, and he seems to have learnt about the the scheme or the attempt from his servant, William Wilson, who was just 21 years old at that time. And when we say servant, well, I think a helper, maybe. Then you step up a, a social level. And there's a chap called Richard Greenwood, who was a priest at Bingley. So the implication is that he would have been drinking with Otwell, at Otwell's house. Mm. And a friend of his was another Bingley priest, John Wilkinson. And he was a canon ordained from Drax Priory, which is near Selby, which apparently had a reputation for having an esoteric library, quite a, quite a clear interest in the more magical aspects of Christianity. Then 
it moves further afield. James Richardson, who was a priest at York and also clearly by his own confession, uh, had been admonished for doing cunning work. And if you don't know what cunning work is, it's, it's service magic. Everything from, say, love fortunes to finding lost things, to finding lost people, to hunting for treasure. Anything which might need a little bit of a glimpse into a world that most of us can't see. Um, then Richardson managed to recruit a chap called Thomas Jameson, who was a merchant in York. Uh, he was really quite an important chap. He was sheriff of York in 1497 and Lord Mayor in 1504. So um, not a chap to be messed with. Then we slipped down a level again to a school teacher from Knaresborough, who also had a wide reputation as a cunning man. And that was John Stewart. I mean, he, his reputation extended across to York, across North Yorkshire, and people travelled so much in those days. We kind of think Knaresborough to York, York to Bingley, yeah. Bingley to Halifax. We come to think of them, well, these these are not areas you you know distances you take lightly, but the whole scheme takes place with quite far flung participants. Thomas Wood, another chap of Bingley, we, and then there was Lawrence Knowles of Harrogate, um, and that was all of them. We don't know much about Thomas or Lawrence. I wanted to elaborate a little bit on. John Stewart um, and his involvement because mm. um, he was described as a cunning man wasn't he I wanted to elaborate mm. a little bit on what cunning people were and what their role was in society then as I mentioned they they deal with all these kind of levels of magic which might be useful to the ordinary person in the in the village mm. so there would have been cunning men with occasionally cunning women in later centuries um, but at that point it was mostly men and I'll tell you why in a minute who would have some ability some uncanny ability to work magic to know us about astrology um, maybe to have a facility with uh, interpersonal psychology by which they could gather information and then feed it back to their clients and uh, every community would have had at least one cunning person. Every community would have known of cunning people around them. That worked successful. And some were more skilled in some areas than other ones. You know, you, you might go to so-and-so who would have been good at for love filters and love potions, you know, someone like that. Um, so cunning people were not witches. So it was best to keep on the right side of them. Um, but they were people who could also combat witchcraft. And uh, they, knew, they knew how to get rid of spells and enchantments and so on, and to identify witches, which is perhaps one of the things which makes the difference. And at the time we're speaking of medieval Christianity, if you were an educated person, you would have taken clerical orders because if you enrolled at a university 
you had to have been enrolled in clerical training. And as you go through that training, you you rise, you rise up the, the ladder of, of priestly status. And of course, in the end, there's Pope, but not many people got to that. But what a, every man who did that quite early on this progression of stages, you were taught the basics of exorcism and you received an official guide to rituals involved in exorcism, which, of course, involves invoking and banishing spirits. Right? And then you got on with your training. Maybe you'd become a priest. Maybe you'd get further, but maybe you wouldn't. In which case, you might be finding a need to supplement your income because of a vicar's income wasn't wasn't great, a minister in the 16th century. But what you had were all the skills that would set you up with a sideline as a service magician. Right. So the, the, the widespread nature of cunning folk means that there's a lot of educated people there who have received basic training in ritual magic, yeah. what we'd recognise as ritual magic. Steward seemed to have a particular skill for find, finding missing items, didn't he? Do you he think that's why, that's why he was he became involved? They might have called upon him in, because of that. Yes, he also seems to have had some kind of reputation as skilled in magic. He, he got into trouble. Well, he'd got in trouble as well, yeah, but he'd also managed to negotiate some what's called virgin parchment which is parchment made from the skin of a cow's first calf oh, and as yeah. such is, is a truly magical substance that was for the making of a magic circle um there are other uses for it as well but um so in other words he had a very clear idea of what he would get if somebody says um would you like this bit of virgin parchment? He said, oh, yes. He's got some idea of what he's going to do with it. So it would seem to have been acknowledged not to be a common or guard cunning person, but to have some good grasp of the procedures. There's, a, there's something that you mentioned that is just fascinating, really. It seems to have been some knowledge about him that's been passed on from a couple of people. Um, and it's said mm. that I'll just quote it. Stuart kept three bumblebees or something like bumblebees under a special stone and would call them out one by one to feed them with a drop of blood from his finger. Um, and that this may be the first recorded instance in Britain of feeding a familiar with one's own blood. That's right. That was the next thing I was going to mention about John oh. Stewart because... Um, <laughs> He had this story going about it. A, a feature of English witchcraft is the use of familiars. Now, this isn't known so strongly on the continent at all. It's an English thing that magical practitioners have familiars in the form of helper, animal helpers and so on. Is that what a definition of a familiar is? Yeah, um, a familiar is an animal spirit helper. So the magician and the familiar will, or the witch and the familiar will work together 
in order to effect the magician's will. And remember, the art of magic is to make changes in accordance to, with one's will. So, as I say, this appears to be an English magical speciality. And this case of John Stewart appears to be the first earliest case we know of, of a magician or which feeding an animal, which is a magical animal, some kind. But for the allegation to be made, it was obviously already current in popular discussion. Yeah. Um, in a sense, I, I kind of get the feeling that Philip Pullman may have been working from that idea of the familiar to create his demons in his dark materials. So maybe if you think of his the demons in his dark materials, that kind of gives you an idea of how they may have functioned. So, so this information about Stuart, it came out in the, the trial? It came out in the trial, yeah. Um, the allegation seems to have been made at a party in Addingham, a party of priests, where one of them said, yeah, I've heard of this, John Stuart. They, they say he feeds three bees. With a drop of blood from his finger, yeah. By name, by name. Of course, you've got to name your familiar as well. Yeah. Um, to give it power. So, yeah, th th this this is a very important point in the victims and treasure. Yeah. Um, just to to contrast that, um, the cunning work. There was also when we sort of understand the the number of priests that were involved in in this venture. We we probably should mention the clerical underworld um, that existed. I alluded to that by saying you've got all these skilled men. <laughs> but but in terms of people who did actually make it to priesthood, there was some form of occultism going on then as well, wasn't there? Well, yeah, as I say, from the from the exorcism um grade, where you had those skills, you're then moving up within a religion which is based on ritual and magical illusion. I mean Roman Catholicism is a hugely magical. It's one of the reasons why the Protestants hated it so much because its its aura is essentially of magic. If you think of if you think of the mass, you know, what's this turning wine into the blood of Christ? You know, the, the communion ways. Of, this is magic. There's no two ways about it. So uh, they're working within that context. And as they get more and more skilled in the ritual application of uh, priesthood, then they would have been swapping books and information. Just to quote something that you said, which I, I think is a pretty good way of saying it, really, that ritual was a gateway that could either lead to religion or sorcery. Yes, that's right. I read that thing I, I wrote last night and I thought yeah that's a good way of saying it, it is, thank you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they can't be clearly distinguished at some areas so what you had was this this whole bunch of people in clerical orders some of them priests some of them not but all of them educated and most of them having gone through this grade of exorcist and having the ability to uh intercede with 
demonic entities. And when I say demonic entities, I'm, I'm talking about spiritual entities, not in demons with little horns on their heads and all of that kind of popular thing. Um, demons are just spiritual beings. They're not little devils. And the notion of where any divide came was very hazy. During the 16th century, as the Renaissance for ideas were filtering into England, there was, there was a whole way of thinking that was developing, which was seeing the Kabbalah as laying down a basis by which Christianity could be affirmed. And this, this idea of Kabbalistic Christianity was beginning to spread through Europe. And this, of course, confused things even, even more. So an awful lot of priests were thinking, well, we're getting to a stage where um, we can see that magic is part of God's plan. So it is behoven to a priest to explore it further. And uh, we know that priests were exchanging grimoires and Grimoires are manuals of, of witchcraft, books of spells and ways to do things. And we're exchanging that kind of information amongst themselves. There was a marketplace all, all, all over England. There, there were specialist secondhand book dealers in magic. <laughs> so when we, if we talk about clerical underworld, that's, that's kind of what they're doing. It's, it's not the overt rituals of Christianity, but they are rituals by which they could further understand the nature of the spiritual life on earth. Mm. So which of the nine men, just for clarity, um, would be classed in, in this camp? There were three priests, uh, um, Richardson, Wilkinson, and uh, who's the other one? Um, Greenwood. Greenwood, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Greenwood comes from the Heptonstall Greenwoods, by the way. He was a member of that family. Oh. Um, so there are three priests, plus there was John Stewart, who was a school teacher, which means he's he would have gone through the exorcism training. Yeah, but he his work was classed as cunning work. Yeah. So the the clerical occultism aspect that the three priests would bring into it this worried some of the other conspirators didn't it yeah because you'll go to church and you'll have the priests pontificating about the wiles of the devil and so on and uh, what the priests would have said in the pulpit would have intimated a far clearer differentiation between magic and religion than they would have been pursuing in their own esoteric life. Right. Um, because the stuff of religion for the ordinary person, essentially, is what, I know this is going to sound cynical, what the church needs to tell you to keep you compliant. Yes. And um, priests don't abide by the same rules, necessarily. So the ordinary people who have been told that, you know, demons are, are, are like devils and imps. They're saying, oh, right, so you're going to maybe call up this demon. Isn't that a bit um, unchristian? 
So at that point, the priests were reassuring them, and they've probably reassured them in the same sort of way as I just described. They, they would have said, we have this way of thinking which sees magic in a far more Christian way. Plus, there was a law. You know, the laws say you cannot dig into the ground. So you're not breaking the law because we won't be digging because it's halfway visible. Yeah. You know, and so they would have been assuring them that they're not breaking the laws of God uh, because of the way they were doing it and because of the demons that they were going to deal with. Belfares in a 15th century manuscript, Dr. Rudd described Belfares as a demon you could invoke without fear of compromising your Christian faith. Right. Okay, that's interesting. And they also worked with Oberon, and Oberon was reckoned to be friendly to people, whatever their faith. So they would have been spun a line and reassured, and probably at the end they say, and you know, there's a lot of money at the end of all this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Of the conspirators who voiced concerns, Wilson was one of them, wasn't he? He testified at court that he, he'd wanted it to be done within the laws of God. Yeah, Otwell particularly. Uh, and Knowles also raised that question. Wilson, Wilson seems to have been very keen on the whole scheme altogether. He seems to have been the person who heard of it and then, and then started the ball rolling. He may have just been having a kind of crisis of conscience. But this clearly divides them in terms of their status, doesn't it? The priests who who already have more control of the situation than the the common folk. They probably don't realise at this point that they're being, you know, used. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a strange group. Mm. Well, some of them were brought in as um, as legwork, really. I mean, Knowles, his role seems to have been mostly as go-between. He was a a carrier, you know, so he would have regularly travelled between York and Nesborough and Halifax and elsewhere. Um, so him going back and forth with messages to these uh, other other men would have allayed suspicions, whereas if Wilkinson, for instance, Wilkinson Greenwood had gone to John Stewart in Maresborough. People have said, what are these priests doing this chap who has who has notoriety for feeding bees. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's an odd setup altogether. We should probably also mention as as well as it going against some kind of religious principles to dig up treasure, it was also against the law because any buried treasure that was discovered became the property of the the state. Which is the same principle that we have now. Yeah. So you, you were breaking the law in several ways. It's not just heresy, but also it could be classed as treason. If you take what belongs to the lord of the land, the sovereign land, yeah, at that time, remember, the the monarch was God's representative and they ruled by divine right. Yeah, so it's a whole other area to wander off in. So 
Yeah, okay. We'll stick to the story. <laughs> You've been listening to History Out Loud, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries. Produced and presented by Jill Carpenter. And John Billingsley and I will be back next week for the second part of The Mixenden Treasure. <laughs>